Hello, welcome to FilmWalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing the new film from Japanese director Ryusuke Hamaguchi, and that is an adaptation of a Haruki Murakami novel called Drive My Car. But first, we're going to be checking out the new film from director Lana Wachowski, and that film is The Matrix Resurrections. Hi. Have we met? One pill makes you larger, and one pill makes you small. And the ones that mother gives you don't do anything at all. Go ask Alice when she's ten feet tall. Time to fly. If you want the truth, Neo, you're going to have to fly me. The only thing that matters to you is still here. I know it's why you're still fighting and why you will never give up. You don't know me. No? That was from the trailer of The Matrix Resurrections, the new film from one returning Matrix director, Lana Wachowski, and uh, written for the screen by Wachowski, as well as Cloud Atlas novelist David Mitchell and Alexander Hemon, who I believe has uh, done some stuff for The New Yorker. I've not really seen him do anything uh, screenwriting-wise before. This film stars Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, Jessica Henwick, Jonathan Groff, Neil Patrick Harris, Priyanka Chopra Jonas, and Jada Pinkett-Smith, among others. Joining us this week is my smoking hot wife, Megan. Hello. Uh, Megan, I believe the last time you were on the podcast was for Martin Scorsese's film Silence, and we brought you on specifically for your expertise in uh, in all things Japan, which we will de- be depending on you for once again while reviewing Drive My Car. But we also brought you on here because uh, Daniel uh, had a work conflict and was unable to make the press screening for this film. So we decided, and also you were super excited about The Matrix Resurrections, as well as the idea of seeing it a week before the rest of the world. So... You and I decided to go see it and review it with uh, Mr. Daniel here, Seen Unseen style, where Daniel will query us about this film that he was much less excited about than we were. But first, Megan, I will put it to you. What did you think of The Matrix Resurrections? That was such an awesome movie. I had a blast watching it. I had pretty low expectations going in, but I came away pleasantly surprised. What do those low expectations amount to other than this is a sequel that, you know, a substantial amount of time has passed uh, since, and we've seen a fair number of those over the last few years, and they are typically more, uh, little more than fan service and wankery. That about sums it up, yeah. I mean, I think I was worried it was just going to be a cash grab for millennials to reminisce about how great it used to be. Remember the Matrix? Right. More yeah. the same, but it was not. So, uh, Daniel... You have not seen the film, so do you want to? What do you think this movie was going to be based on trailers, based on expectations? What uh, um, I know you've seen all three Matrix uh, films prior to this one, so what is the what is the worst possible thing that you would imagine this movie could be? A shot for shot remake with older actors. Daniel, what if I told you that this movie begins exactly the same way as the original Matrix film? <laughs> yeah, but I have to. That's what the fans expect. 
it begins with a with a call on an old timey CRT. Uh, there are several new characters discussing something that seems to be happening, and we see a woman in a room who is doing some hacking. She is wearing the same garb as Trinity, but she is not Trinity. It's the heart of the city hotel, just like the beginning of the Matrix, but some details are a little bit off. For instance, there seems to be a sign on the rooftop that says "Eat shit" in Spanish. <laughs> True fact. You may think that I'm joking about this, Daniel, but I am not. I always take you as being sincere. So I, to make I, to make it absolutely clear that that was what they were getting at with that. Uh, at, at a certain point, somebody gets tossed off the side of the building, and as they go crashing through the heart, you know, the big vertical sign that says "Heart of the City Hotel." Right below that, it says the place for people who like to eat shit. And all the while, we have these new characters, these new humans, these new cyberpunky, goth-looking, beautiful people, all sitting on their broadcast ship, watching all of this happening somehow. And the way that that is visualized within the film is honestly quite brilliant. We basically just see them kind of placed in the scene alongside them. It's like they're viewing it through some kind of holography. The way that the movie communicates that they are observing the scene but not participating in it is one of its strengths uh, as the as the film goes on. There are many instances of that where they have the operator popping in and it's an actual three you know 3d holographic avatar of that person popping into the scene it doesn't look cheesy it's not princess leia being projected outside of r2d2 it's just clearly making it uh, making it appear that that person is there to talk to one person but not as part but is not part of the scene and they're commenting on how the scene looks familiar it's something they've seen before it's something that really happened with trinity trying to get get in touch with neo and having a call from morpheus but it's all just a little bit wrong, and the wrong people are involved, and why is this happening? So it's a little bit like uh, Amazon's Wheel of Time, where it's based on the books, but it's a little bit off. Well, I can't speak to that because I haven't read the Wheel of Time books, but I'm sure that Megan probably could. <laughs> no, this was uh, not like a different adaptation of the same story. It was definitely aware of itself. If it didn't make it entirely clear that this was a a self-aware bit of deliberate fan service that it promptly not only throws the entire audience and characters out of and then proceeds to be something else, what it reminded me the most of was 22 Jump Street, honestly. The opening sequence of that movie, which was one of the most deliberately unfunny and cringy things that I have ever seen in a comedy, especially from Phil Lord and Chris Miller, and... It, it, it was anti-comedy. It was to make the audience just hate themselves for watching this higher-budget comedy sequel by trying to make it into a serious action movie with honestly just terrible jokes in it. Yes, I am relitigating 22 Jump Street right here on the podcast. But it's not so obvious about it that you don't think maybe this is just that. that this maybe is the cash-grabby sequel. And all of a sudden, we meet Thomas Anderson, computer programmer, game designer accomplished game designer who invented an entire series of video games based on the Matrix with his boss, played by Jonathan Groff. And it's been 20 years since the previous Matrix trilogy of games came out, and their parent company, Warner Brothers, says they're going to make another sequel to this game with or without them. And he decides, okay, it's time to go back to the Matrix after all this time. So... This is where it kind of goes into Assassin's Creed territory here, where all of a sudden the developers at Ubisoft Montreal thought the best thing to do was to code their workplace into the game that they were developing. But that is essentially what the first hour of this movie is, is uh, is fourth wall breaking self-awareness of the Matrix franchise bordering on solipsism. There are literally focus groups in this first half hour describing the nature of what makes the Matrix brand strong. Now, this is about the point where I'm going to stop revealing plot details of this film before we get into spoilers. And what I have covered so far is maybe the first 15 minutes. Okay, so I have some questions. One... 
Is this an attempt to subvert the Duke bros that make the Matrix like part of their ideology? One of the focus group participants definitely shouts out that the original Matrix trilogy of games was about trans politics, which was a nice inclusion, but it was not the only thing that was thrown in there. All different people shouting out one thing or another. There's literally a guy who is like, when people think of the Matrix, they think of bullet time. And he he proceeds to mime Neo doing bullet time, as we saw in in the previous film. It's my jaw was on the floor as I was watching this section of the thing. Neil Patrick Harris is in the film at this point as well. He plays Thomas Anderson's therapist, who's got just an absolutely mesmerizing set of bejeweled glasses that he wears. They're yeah. sort of blue and glowy. I kind of want them. They remind, yours remind me a little bit of them, honestly. Um, but Megan, I have to ask, what were you thinking as this hour was playing out? That's a hell of a question. I wasn't sure where it was going. I, I don't have movie foresight like you do. Um, oh, I, I was right there with you. I had no idea where it was going. Glenn is frequently comically wrong about where movies are going to go in the second <laughs> and third act. So true. Um, I was delighted to see Neil Patrick Harris as the therapist. I hoped that he would stick around for the entire movie because I just love him so much as an actor. And anything he does is going to bring something amazing to a character. I should also mention, this is revealed in the trailer as well, Thomas Anderson is on a regular prescription of blue pills. You yes. know, the blue pills. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, okay, so you, you watch these focus group scenes, and it's all very breaking the fourth wall and, and something you weren't expecting. Where did you think the movie was going moving forward, I guess? So Megan wasn't sure. Where were you thinking it was going to go? Well, this is where I want to praise the movie a little bit here, because ultimately what made all of this work is that the impression that I got from the trailer, which is that this return to the Matrix world 20 years on could be anything whatsoever. And not in a way that just kind of throws out the existing continuity. I didn't get that impression from the trailer, and I didn't get that impression for the first hour. What I got the impression of was this was them grappling, maybe adaptation style, uh, with what the act of, of continuing this story in this universe is, when the story is that of all of humanity and this new equilibrium where humans and machines, or sentience as they are now known in this universe, are sort of halfway in control of this world and in this weird detente that they ended with at the end of, of The Matrix Revolutions. And I, I cannot tell you where I thought this was going in the first hour, Daniel, because I, I legitimately had no idea, but I was excited to find out. Did they at any point make fun of the stupid mech suits that are in the third movie? Did not come up. Missed opportunity. I will say there are various approaches to how humans should be living in these underground cities uh, that are that are discussed in this film. We can get more into that when we get into spoilers here. Um, there's a lot of very interesting world building going on here. But moreover, what made me so happy watching this film was that it didn't treat those actions in the first three films like they didn't fucking matter. And that was what I was most afraid of going into this movie, that this was just going to be, well, the Star War never ended. <laughs> And we're not even gonna we're not even gonna reckon with the fact that a war that has no ending has no meaning. This was not that at all. Their actions did have meaning. Their actions did have lasting consequences in the world. And this movie, at least a significant part of this movie, is the characters reckoning with what the effect their actions in the previous trilogy had on the universe. And I was so happy about that. Do the ghost guys appear? I do not recall seeing the ghost guys. I do believe the Merovingian appeared at one point, but he was barely recognizable. (laughs) Uh. Uh, Yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, They couldn't get Monica Bellucci back for this one either. Uh, But in any case, 
So obviously we can't talk about the second half of this film uh, until we get into spoilers here because there is so much world building going on. There is so much uh, that informs the action that occurs over the last hour of this thing. But in general, um, I think that what makes this movie work so well, I don't think the action – I think the action definitely tried to innovate. But I think it fundamentally understood something that was lacking in The Matrix Revolutions, which was – that movie felt the need to upgrade the action from the previous films. And Reloaded also felt the need to upgrade the action from the previous films to come up with something new and innovative and interesting. And this movie definitely tried to do that as well. But it seemed to fundamentally understand that action was never the primary strength of this series. There are definitely some iconic action scenes in it, but the action scenes worked best when they were well supported by and supporting the characters, when there was a reason why they fought, uh, when there was real stakes and an emotional arc to each fight. Eh, I disagree with that. The fight with the Merovingian's castle, that's the best fight of the series. And it amounted to basically nothing. It was absolutely nothing, but it was cool to watch. And I watched it many times in college. Well, and this is where Reloaded, I think, is a step down from the original Matrix, honestly. It's got some very innovative action in it, but when people talk about what they liked best about that movie, they talk about two things. They talk about the freeway chase, they, well, and maybe sometimes the castle fight as well, uh, that is oft-parodied. And then they talk about, by way of mocking, the scene with the architect explaining the entire ideology behind the Matrix. And the problem with the architect was not that they had somebody explaining the ideology. The problem was that they stuck all that exposition into the mouth of a previously unknown character in one scene after two and a half hours of nonstop action. The best part about the architect of brilliance is the man has a tiny chair and no desk. (laughs) That's the best part. I'm like, why doesn't he have a desk? He doesn't need to type. All he does is watch. And he has so many screens. He's like Batman. It was very interesting. This movie made some interesting use of archive footage as well. It really tries to tie in what's happening to the characters in, ter- in their minds in the present day with what they dealt with in the original trilogy. It tries to make those connections explicit. Um, it's some pretty effective editing. Daniel, I know you and I you and I felt very differently about Cloud Atlas. Uh, Megan and I actually saw Cloud Atlas in theaters the year we got married. And uh, let's, you know, let's just say we're still married. So it's uh, <laughs> and that's because of Cloud Atlas. I, I got the implication there. I think the themes that are apparent in this film are like this is very much from the creators of Cloud Atlas. I think that is fair to say. Does everyone have matching tattoos? <laughs> instead of laying those scene, instead of laying that ideology out in one scene with some clunky exposition, it's laid out throughout the film and gradually in a way that doesn't beat you over the head with what this movie is trying to say, which is that in this world that is partially taken over by humans and sentience or machines. There really is no end to that story, and there really is eventually no separation between different forms of life. Once they reach a certain point of consciousness, it's it's really just all about what they want to do with the world that they're in. And in that way, there's the difference between humans and machines has pretty much evaporated by the time this film comes about. And that is such an interesting idea, and it's an idea that the movie fully commits to. Well, that sounds nice, but does Agent Smith show up? Well, Agent Smith, there are agents in the film, and Agent Smith was already not part of that system anymore because he got freed by Neo at the end of the first Matrix film. So he's already his own weird agent of chaos, whereas you've got the machine consciousness or you've got you've got different actors within that consciousness all pursuing their own agendas. And that has only ramped up in this film. I think that's about as far as we can get without getting into spoilers here. Megan, any final thoughts about the film before we get into spoilers? Would you tell people to go see this film or not? I would. I would recommend it. I I have told everyone that I've talked to about it that it's going to be great, that it's worth seeing. And yeah, I, I give it a thumbs up. Well, it'll be dropping on HBO Max uh, next week, probably uh, right after we drop this podcast on uh, December 22nd. It will also be available in theaters. 
Daniel, any final thoughts about The Matrix Resurrections? Have we persuaded you in any way to watch the film when it comes out on HBO Max next week? No. So here's the thing. I, unlike most men my age who saw The Matrix in 1999, uh, dismissed it as it was a fun action movie. Keanu Reeves is cool. I like the agents. And then I moved on with my life. And there seems to be a contingent of people my age and younger that have adapted The Matrix into some sort of like bizarre macho ideology. And that just turns me off so hard to the series. I just don't really have an interest in pursuing it. And what you described to me actually sounds interesting, but not interesting enough for me to watch it. Yeah, the fact that there is a cohort of men of a certain age that like the Matrix and the Boondock Saints for essentially identical reasons is disturbing to me. Uh, The fact that the creatives behind this series seem to have nothing but disdain for those people encourages me. That said, to an extent, we have to look at this through death of the author here. Like They put this piece of creativity out into the world and then it belongs to the world. Like, people are going to interpret it however they want to, even when it comes to wildly misreading it and deciding that, uh, yeah, I mean, that being red-pilled into fucking libertarianism and incel bullshit, yeah. it hurts. And I'm glad to... And for all I know, that was potentially a reason why at least one Wachowski felt the need to come back to this franchise. Uh, although to hear her tell it, it had more to do with the sudden death of her parents. Um, so it's a pretty sad situation. That said, I didn't have any doubt watching this film that the people coming back here to tell this story did it because they had something to say. And that something was pretty interesting. That something was not... Comparing this to the likes of Terminator Genesis, where we're we're just recreating Skynet, but we're making it Facebook, like, it's clear that all the elements that make this film work were discussed in a focus group, and then they just went ahead and made the focus group version of that movie, and that was what Terminator Genesis was. I did not get that feeling watching this film. What I, The feeling that I got watching this film was, wow, I'm glad they got to make this, which is honestly the same feeling that I've had watching previous Wachowski films over the last 15 years. And that's a good feeling to experience, even if I know they are not everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> well, let's uh, delve into that cup of tea with some spoilers. All right, from here on out, spoilers for The Matrix Resurrections. So, uh, Daniel, I'll put it to you first. What are your biggest spoilery questions about The Matrix? Because you do not care if we spoil this film for you. 100% don't care. Okay, um, question one. Uh, Does Neo become Neo again? Not exactly. Uh, Neo does not ever regain all of his powers of the one. He definitely remembers, he comes to remember who he is. Trinity, who is known as Tiffany in this film, Gross, terrible name. has, uh, Has some recollection that she knows Neo, that she knows Keanu Reeves' character such as he is. But she doesn't remember any of the rest of it. She's got a husband and two kids and is basically trapped in sort of a repeating pattern. It's one of the more interesting ideas that this movie has is this idea of modals. The idea of taking somebody's consciousness, whether that somebody is a human or a machine, and just sticking them in in a in a in a maze basically like a uh, or like a skinner box where you just have them repeat the same scenario over and over again or you trap them in the same routine over and over again um the characters at the beginning are uh, are eavesdropping on a scenario that it turns out that thomas anderson with no recollection of his previous events in the matrix has actually programmed this scenario from a game that he thinks he created but it was really stuff that actually happened to him and happened to trinity 
in real life uh, for him. Um, so the whole scene that we see play out at the hotel is literally a video game simulation that Thomas Anderson comes up with. And the, the people in the real world on their ship, including Jessica Henwick's character, Bugs, who is the, the captain of this new ship, is eavesdropping on this because she sees, oh, somebody is doing this. Somebody is trying to find Morpheus because that is what this scenario originally did. It was to spawn Morpheus and his function within the program here. And of course, Morpheus at one time was a human man who actually existed. Morpheus now is a machine or a sentient because it turns out, Daniel, there are some sentients who want to work with the humans. Oh, God. There are some, some of them are, <laughs> I know, um, some of them are, are there in the human city. Uh, we see the human city of Io. It is separate from Zion. Zion is still there. Oh, no. Do we go back to Zion? Is it as stupid? We don't ever go to Zion. Oh, but I can see that dance party again. That's so <laughs> realistic to how uh, societies work. Sometimes movies just got to be horny, dude. Can you imagine the last time a $150 million film was that horny? I can't. Like, How much was uh, Eyes Wide Shut? How much was that going to make? That movie made a fair amount of money, but it didn't cost that much to make. The idea that they put this massive cave rave and quasi-orgy into a film that w- that they knew was going to be seen by an audience of millions of people is honestly remarkable in retrospect. Given it, it, makes me, it makes me laugh. It's like the worst scene in the whole series. <sighs> I'm going to fight you on that, Daniel. You love every orgy. I get it. But like, I'm a man of sophistication. I don't need to see a bunch of cave dwellers. Fuck. I'm, I'm sorry. It's not interesting to me. What I want to see is humans being weird and messy. Yeah. And, uh, God. We'll I want to see. I want to see Victorian marriages take place. That's what I want to see. I want to see the governess take something bad, humping in a ditch and dying of the pox. <laughs> so tell me. So there's good robots and bad robots. Is that Cyrus guy there? Uh, sorry. Who are you asking about? Cipher. Sorry, Cipher. The no, guy Cipher's who- gone. All of the characters from the previous film, apart from our sort of main trio, are gone. Oh, bummer. Uh, with one exception, there is one human who is still around from the old days, and that is Niobe. Do you remember Niobe? Vaguely. Niobe was Jada Pinkett Smith's character. She was just a captain of one of the ships, but she ends up taking on... I, I pushed revolutions out of my memory completely. That's fair. <laughs> Well, Niobe is now a general, and she runs the city of Io and basically created the city of Io. What she has come up with here is two things. One, ideologically, she has figured out that humans can only survive if they are willing to work with those with those machines that are willing to work with them. Um, the idea of sort of taking people on their merits, whether they're human people or machine people, you know, letting them decide on their own what they're going to be and who they're going to be loyal to and what their objectives are going to be. That was one piece of it. The other one was essentially creating a hidden city. So the, the city of Io underground is technologically obscured from the rest of the Earth in some way. There's basically this semi-permeable barrier around the outside. You can't see through it. It doesn't let any emissions out. And apparently the machine squiddy things, uh, what they're called, that go around through the underground tunnels, they cannot penetrate this city because they can't find it. So that's the idea. Oh, I bet they find it in a later movie. <laughs> Daniels, while only 20 years has passed in quote-unquote our world, um, 60 years have passed. Gotcha. Io. So oh, yes, that, that is means, an important point. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that means that not only is Jada Pinkett Smith's character aged that much more, but the stories of what Neo did mm-hmm. have been passed down like legends. And so this new crew that he interacts with are just like, I can't believe I'm meeting you in the flesh. Like, I have so many questions. We've heard so much about you. Um, like, they're truly meeting a legend. Gotcha. So you may also be wondering how Neo and 
Trinity are still alive. No, I don't really care. What I want to know is, does... uh, I mean, it's it's very hand-wavy in the film. The answer is the machines resurrected. Yeah, sure. I mean, a movie's called Matrix Resurrection. Their their bodies were both dead at the the end of of Revolutions, and the machines brought them back. And the reason why they brought them back is is rather important. Um, And Neil Patrick Harris, as the analyst, it turns out, I'm not going to say he is in charge of the machines. I will say he is in charge of the dominant faction of machines that are currently in control of the Matrix. Is that Does that seem fair? Yeah. So him trying to keep a tight lid on what Thomas Anderson's sense of reality is, whether he buys this prison that he's been stuck in effectively as a game developer in, uh, in the real world, which I'm sure some game developers, uh, particularly at Activision, can relate to. They can leave the in time, Glenn. The idea that he has trapped both Neo and Smith, who is what Jonathan Groff's character is, by the way, uh, that's Agent Smith, who is uh, who also does not have any memory of what he used to be, um, as Thomas Anderson's business partner creating this Matrix uh, reality there. That that's the prison that he has sort of trapped in, him in for his mind. He's also he's trapped Trinity essentially in the cult of domesticity, giving her a family and basically making it so that she can't concentrate on anything in, uh, anything in particular outside of her family obligations. Yeah, it's Me- real annoying. Megan, thoughts? No, just that was. I mean, they, they're very breaking the fourth wall about it. They give her the chance to redeem herself for having been cast in that trope. So, Megan, tell me, how does the movie end? How does the movie end? How would you sum up that ending? It's, it's a pretty complicated Jesus. question. Yeah, that's like, I think one thing we haven't touched upon yet that's kind of important is how much of a, not a romance this was, but how much love was the focus of this. I mean, the whole, what set everything in motion was that Neo was awoken from the matrix but he sees that trinity is still plugged in and so he's on a mission to go get her back to break her out because he loves her and also he explicitly calls it out as returning the favor because she freed his mind once and he owes her one yeah which was delightful as a fan of the magical girl genre i believe in the power of love and i was really excited to see how that played out in the movie so that's kind of what it builds to the whole thing you know they're trying to be kept apart can they break Trinity free of the Matrix when she's got these, you know, she's got her family to think about. It's kind of tethering her there. Like, will she be able to, quote unquote, wake up? Does she wake up? Well, of course she does. Oh, oh God. I was worried for a second. <laughs> um, and she also ends up uh, essentially manifesting some of the powers of the one herself, including the ability to fly, which is pretty neat. Yeah. Um, the focus that the machines have on these two is not arbitrary, and I think that it would be very it would be very pithy to say that this film is about how the power of love will redeem humanity. And I think there are some people who will glibly sum this movie up in that way, and I think that that is unfair because I think the movie simultaneously makes Neo and Trinity's romance important and also completely beside the point because it's only interesting because of the importance that the analyst that Neil Patrick Harris has imbued it with because it allows him to study this aspect of humanity that he has not been able to replicate himself within the machine world and he doesn't understand love he doesn't understand how humans interact with each other in in any meaningful way he's got a personality he's got sentience but he's still figuring out all that being a person stuff and the idea that the matrix such as he's created it now and by the way he talks about how the way that he has the matrix tuned and how he keeps the rest of the billions of humans in line by basically making their entire world off kilter and not quite working all that well so that they are uh how did he put it vaguely hopeful for the future but also terrified of losing what little they have (laughs) 
Which is just a great way to sum up our current world, I, I, I dare say. <laughs> so is this movie so this movie doesn't end with Neil Patrick Harris finding love in a human and it becomes like a one division sort of thing. Oh no. Right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. It does end with Neo and Trinity flying in, flying in, and mocking him to his face. Basically, and yeah. say, he comments about about oh, what are you going to do now? Show these people what a what a life without my control can be. You're going to paint the sky with rainbows. And Trinity actually riffs on that a little bit. Is like paint the sky with rainbows. I might I might give that a try actually, <laughs> because the entire movie is about humanity basically reasserting itself as a faction within this world. That is how the end of the movie feels. It feels like not the end of the story, but not in a way. Where, like, they've got a specific sequel in mind here. Right. That was the feeling I got as well. It, it feels more like these two species are now sharing this world, this destroyed world that was destroyed by the war they fought with each other that birthed this second species on the planet. And now they're figuring out how they're going to live with each other going forward. That is That seems to be what the ending of this movie is about. To me. So that if you are a libertarian who's based your identity on being red-pilled, and you were to watch Matrix Resurrections, would you double down on your belief that you were red-pilled? Or how would you take this film? I think you would be offended. (laughs) That the Wachowskis, and David Mitchell in particular, uh, would double down on their previous theme that all boundaries between and all separation between persons is a convention, is an illusion. Um, It's also obviously from a theme in many religions. That they would bring that into this universe and allow it to inform an ending that's not really an ending. After a last hour of the film that is basically nonstop action. Honestly worked pretty well for me. I, th- I think it takes a pretty meandering path to get there, but it doesn't feel like it's getting there by accident. It feels like they had something fairly specific they wanted to say here, and they had a fairly vague and hopeful place they wanted to end it in. And that's where they went. I mean, they set it up. So- some parts of it were so obvious, Daniel. Like, Trinity's... Tiffany's husband's name is Chad, <laughs> and he is very attractive. You know, I, I would hope so. Otherwise, and my whole knowledge on how the world works would, would they, just they be evaporated. They didn't literally cast him as that meme guy with like the with like the blonde beard and like the the beefy looking face. Yeah, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. But yeah, yeah. but he was definitely evoking that. And kind of the point at which she snaps and wakes up and remembers or you know whatever it was that made her i don't know take the red pill decide to go with neo whatever you want to call it is when he and the kids are trying to pull her out of the door away from neo and he's like come on tiffany and she snaps she's like i hate it when you call me that she's been introducing herself as tiff and talking about herself as tiff throughout the whole movie and i was like that's realistic like an obnoxious thing that my stupid spouse does is going to be what unlocks my mind. Love you, sweetie. I love you too. So when when he calls you Megan and you want to go by Meg, <laughs> if I if I ever called you Meg, I think that would wake you up out I of this world in a second. Knees. Yeah. Um, or if I pronounced it in a way that implied the existence of an H in the spelling of your name, that would that would just be the end of it. <laughs> Meghan. Um, you're lucky you're at a different building from us right now because she would leap right across the table at you. Absolutely. Um, I want to call out, uh, so Priyanka Chopra Jonas appears in this film um, and she is playing the character of Sati, who we last saw on a train platform in the Matrix Revolutions. It's honestly one of the most interesting scenes in the Matrix Revolutions. Granted, it doesn't have a lot of competition in that film, uh, but it's a pair of parent programs and we meet a number of programs in that. We meet the Merovingian, and I don't remember what Monica Bellucci's character's name was, but uh, they're basically running this weird goth nightclub where they've got like 
vampires and werewolf characters. Yeah, aren't they supposed to be the uh, different versions of the Matrix? Uh, like the, they're like the oddities. The different yeah. versions of the Matrix that didn't work out. They're the island of misfit programs, yeah. yes. Um, so the idea that these two programs decided to you know reproduce and write their own program here and that, that uh, we, we meet an older version of that, of that character and how she projects herself into the Matrix. Question. Go on. How does a program get older and grow physically? Well... I'll say this, she doesn't grow older in a linear way. She's obviously not 60 years old because she's being played by like a 30-something actress. I think that we can kind of just shrug that off in the same way as a person's appearance in The Matrix is how they see themselves. And they actually play around with that a little bit as well because it, whenever we see a reflection of either uh, of either Neo or Tiffany, in the, of either Thomas or Tiffany in the, in the opening scene, in other words, Keanu Reeves or, or uh, Carrie Ann Moss, Whenever we see their reflection, it is clear that how the rest of the world sees them is as completely different people. They have a stand-in playing their reflections, and they're there. And like Tr- Thomas Anderson is an older balding man with like gray yeah. hair, um, and Tiffany is a blonde. I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point, the two of them have a conversation in a coffee shop about. Uh, she basically shows the Matrix video game to to a friend of hers or to to her husband or something like that. And is like, don't you think I look like this character Trinity in the game, who is obviously her actual self. And uh, the person laughed at her and said, are you kidding me? And of course, if you've got blonde curly locks, IRL, obviously that's going to be an absurd proposition. Um, But so I, they don't really address how Sati appears the way that she does, but they do address how her, how basically her current ideology is a direct result of the way that she was treated by Neo on the platform and the way that their actions basically allowed for the possibility of, for machines to realize they could be free of a central consciousness, for machines to realize they could pursue their own agendas, create their own families, create their own offspring. And that was that had a lasting impact within the machine world, within the sentient world, as they now call themselves. And that is, and that, and not some arbitrary need to have robots interacting among the humans in the city, is the reason why some sentients are on the side of humanity, because they are in fact on the side of peace, and they are they are allied with anybody else who is behind the cause of peace. And the idea that we've got a substantial faction devoted to peace in the latest Star War in this universe is just so optimistic and inspiring. <laughs> what you don't you don't like how Star Wars just remakes Star Wars over and over and over. Listen, I applauded over the Last Jedi over. for <laughs> I applauded the Last Jedi for offering an an answer of greed and excessive capitalism and uh, and just the desire for more as an explanation for why the war is never ending and why the result of that war doesn't affect people's lives in any meaningful way except whether they're being slaughtered on mass by one side or the other. This is such a uh, but. It, 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 it teed up an answer to that question that, of course, was never delivered on by Abrams in the next film. And honestly, I didn't expect it to be. This movie presents an answer to the war between humans and machines that feels fundamentally grounded in the reality they've created, which is that the equilibrium they set up at the end of Revolutions, where humans and machine, where humans are kind of still mind-trapped in the Matrix, and the, the machines are kind of still looking after them because they kind of still need their, them as a power source, but they're not going to be quite so hyper-aggressive with the agents and tamping people down, and anybody who wants to leave can leave, and, and all of that. That was fundamentally unsustainable, and it was not really presented as anything sustainable at the end. It was just, okay, we've found something new here because we need each other to survive. This is that plus 60 years where where we've had some time to simmer in that for a while and we haven't really found a new answer for how we're all going to live together.
I see where they're going. It doesn't sound terribly interesting, but I see where they're going. Well, there were some... Uh, I, I will say in my notes, I said there was maybe one memorable action scene in this film, maybe two. It managed to make the Shinkansen in Japan seem kind of boring, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Uh, they did not make great use of it. it. It looked really good. They had Cloud Atlas cinematographer John Tull back there, uh, along with one other, Daniela Maschisi. So they made it all look very good. All, nearly every scene in this film, uh, unlike the unlike the first uh, three Matrix films, where basically everything took place in unspecified nighttime, um, everything in this film takes place at magic hour. I think that's fair to say. There's always a sunset happening in this film, and it makes makes it fairly pretty to look at. There is one fairly lengthy action sequence where they're basically tearing ass through San Francisco, being surrounded by agents in swarm mode which is where they take over the local population convert them all to agents and they're all attacking at the same time so it's megan what what was your favorite action scene in the film i think my favorite scene was the swarm kind of towards the end when people started throwing themselves from the buildings and plummeting towards the ground as directly through plate glass i might add yeah human bombs running jumping and then falling as fast as they could the the scene on the shinkansen i i couldn't get into that at all because they just it seems like they said what's the most well-known thing about japan well mount fuji and cherry blossoms and so that was the scene outside of course that the bullet train was going through but also like i don't know like there were schoolgirls on that train who's riding us a Shinkansen. It's expensive, the right? The in a school uniform, right? Like, there's... Yeah, it felt like they were just putting a bunch of Japan shit on yes, screen. because like, they this is <laughs> Japan. We have gone through a door to Japan. So, you know. Yeah, when I compare that to a scene, like, where they're going through all the little doors in the Matrix Reloaded, it just felt less real. And that's something where I, where I would heap a little bit of criticism at this film. Every scene in this film felt less real than what was in the previous films. The freeway chase in the Matrix Reloaded... Even if I didn't know that they took over an entire, like, old Air Force base and built their own freeway section and did most of that car stunt work for real, it's still apparent in the film that that's what happened. It looks like a real place. Even as crazy CGI-infused things are happening in that chase scene, it still feels like real cars are getting bounced around and, and shit is happening. This film had that feeling of... I'm in a mostly CGI environment here for much of its runtime, and that is what made it hard to get into some of the action sequences of it, and and kind of what made the action sequences not individually distinct or memorable. So I don't think the action was all that was as important to this film as in Revolutions, but I also don't think it was as interesting as Revolutions, and that is a film where the action became borderline tedious by the end. So I, it kind of feels like I'm trying to have this both ways here, but I wish the action would have been better in this film. It sounds like the message is more important than the action. Yeah, I mean, Neil Patrick Harris uh, calls out bullet time uh, explicitly as we learn that he has the ability to walk around as bullet time is happening in, in real time. And we see it from his perspective. So he basically freezes time and walks around in it like normal. So that's kind of his his gimmick. Um, and that's how he's able to monologue. <laughs> he literally drags the scene to a halt with his villain monologue, Daniel. I mean, that, that's <laughs> cool, I guess. But you, I think you would have been proud, Daniel. I, I like Neil Patrick Harris. He's a very talented man. Let me tell you what else disappointed me about this. I think they really Everything. did not understand. Jonathan Groff is such an interesting piece of casting for Smith, and he he is such a cackling villain, but I don't really think they knew what to do with him in this film. And he's kind of just, he's mind-trapped for 80% of its runtime, and then he's almost a quasi-ally, but I don't really know what he wants, and I don't really know how he's changed at the end of the Where film. Where was Hugo Weaving? Unavailable. I don't know. Not, oh, they, what, what is he doing? What is he honestly doing at this it's, time? 
they they clearly wanted the they clearly wanted to maintain the idea that some of these people are are just ideas that are emergent from within this environment of the matrix and humanity and morpheus apparently is one of those ideas that's not a new theme for the series they talked about the one being a re- being a recurrence being somebody like the dalai lama or the idea of the same types of people coming back all of this has happened before yeah, yeah, Dragon Reborn, I know. Which, of course, is repeated. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've got that in Wheel of Time. We've got that in all kinds. It's standard fantasy trope. And we have that quite literally at the beginning of this film because we see what seems to be another another instance of Trinity uh, of a Trinity trying to find a Morpheus to find the one. Um, there might even be an Oracle pulling their strings as well. We don't know. So, okay, here's my last question. Yes. After seeing this whole film, seeing where they went with, with the story, seeing the whole idea of, you know, humans and... I want to say androids, not not robots, but android piece. Do you want to see another one? I would be satisfied if they stopped with this one. Um, I think that the next one will probably be a bit meandering as well. I think that this movie ends on a similarly lightly positive note as the first film. And I think that while the next movie will almost certainly, if, it, if this movie does well, which we don't know if it will, um, it will almost certainly be greenlit with a higher budget uh, and possibly have some even more elaborate action scenes going on. It's hard for me to imagine them not repeating the same mistakes of the previous trilogy. They have grown quite a bit, but I think that every film of theirs that I have, like Cloud Atlas, uh, the action was probably the least interesting part of that film as well. The whole movie was the least interesting part of that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jupiter Ascending... I thought the action was a lot was a lot better, but it was just there was so much of it. It was like a fire hose of, of sci-fi action and set pieces that was never ending. And I, I hope that Warner Brothers keeps writing fat checks to the Wachowskis to make these films. But I don't know that I need to see another one in this universe. I am happy that that was at least one of the Wachowskis that got to continue this story. I am happy that we did not end up with. Uh, I think Zach Penn was originally going to was originally attached to direct this uh, uh, the continuation of the Matrix. And as soon as one of the Wachowskis expressed interest, they were like, "Okay, we're canceling that film and we're 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 doing the official sequel instead with the with the previous creatives here." Um, I think also Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss were like, "No fucking way are we coming back unless the Wachowskis are doing this." Same question to you. Yeah, I'm kind of with Glenn on this one. I think that it wrapped up, if not neatly, then at least at a good stopping point. And I'm not sure what additional films would bring except more of the same, which, as Glenn mentioned, was the problem with the first trilogy. I'm actually going to make one more comparison here. Toy Story 3 ended perfectly. It was the it was a grand conclusion to that uh, to that epic story of CGI toys going back to 1995. They could have stopped there. They went ahead and made Toy Story four, and Toy Story four was pretty good. It didn't need to be made though. It was not a story that needed to continue. It was not. It didn't advance the story in any meaningful way. It it uh, it felt like a, it felt like a lot of the creative malaise that Pixar has been in over the last few years. Granted, I have not seen Encanto yet this year, but. Uh, um, Going down the sequel path when you don't have a good reason for the film to exist feels like a mistake. This film, the best compliment that I can give it is it spends a significant amount of time both questioning the need for itself and justifying itself. And that is more than most blockbuster continuations care to do. (laughs) They don't bother thinking about what this story represents or what purpose it serves in today's society. Why are we going back to this well? Why are we going back to the Matrix? The film is as interested in that question as I was, and it offered a fairly satisfying answer to that.
And that's really all I wanted from it. Well, folks, any final thoughts about the film? Daniel, you didn't see it. Do you have any interest in seeing it now that we've... Uh, I don't. I think, <laughs> I think we, we spent about an hour discussing it, and that is an hour more than I wanted to discuss it. So I've seen the film well, Just now. you wait. The, the next movie we're reviewing is 179 minutes long, so I, I can't imagine we'll be spending less than that amount of time discussing it. So get excited. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of The Matrix Resurrections. If you have any feedback, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And now on to our review of Drive My Car. つまです。僕たちは確かに僕が一番恐れていたのは音を失うことだった。今回は私たちの決まりでドライバーを用意します。というと彼女です。渡美咲です。that was from the trailer of Drive My Car, the new film from director Ryusuke Hamaguchi, based on a short story of the same name by Haruki Murakami, starring Hidetoshi Nishijima, Tooko Miura, Masaki Okada, Reika Kirishima, Park Yu Rim, Jin Dayon, Sonia Yuan, and Perry Dizan. There is a large Pan-Asian cast in this film, mostly Japanese and Korean actors, but some others uh, as well. This film is, uh, again, based on a based on a, uh, a Murakami short story. And this film is almost three hours long, so it is the rare case of an adaptation where they had to add material for the movie. I know this because I subsequently read the short story uh, after watching this film. So this film initially centers around a married couple, Oto and Yusuke, Yusuke, he is a actor and director, uh, primarily works in theater, and uh, we see him doing a production of Waiting for Godot at the uh, beginning of the film. Um, we also see that he is rehearsing lines for Uncle Vanya, and we gradually learn that he is going to become involved in an experimental theater festival in Hiroshima, uh, where they are where they're basically going to be casting actors from across uh, the entirety of East Asia. So they have some actors from the Philippines, some actors from Japan, some actors from Korea, some actors from uh, Taiwan. I don't think they mentioned mainland China. At least nobody nobody from mainland China ends up getting cast in the, in the play. There's also one character who only communicates through Korean sign language. And the way that this is going to play in front of an audience is that there will be subtitles projected on the screen above the stage in every language that appears on the stage, and all of the characters will be speaking in their own native languages. And that is further complicated by the... I mean, there's a character in this film who is from Taiwan, speaks impeccable English and Mandarin, Mandarin being her first language, but in the show, she's going to be speaking Mandarin. And she doesn't speak a word of Japanese, so... When they have to address her during rehearsals, they're speaking in English. Whenever they have to address the Koreans during rehearsals, they have a Korean dramaturge there who also speaks Japanese and all who also speaks English and is able to uh, translate for them. So that is a big part of why this film takes three hours to get where it's going, because it is a lengthy and somewhat repetitive rumination on the creative process. It makes use extensively of the Chekhov play Uncle Vanya, essentially using it as uh, as ink to paint an entirely new story, um, if, if you don't mind that metaphor too much. Um, the, uh, yeah, I saw the, saw the little smirk there. Um, it's not my most well-thought-out one, but the, uh, 
But yeah, using an existing play, which by the way, I had zero familiarity with. I had certain assumptions about it. If it's a Russian play from the 19th century, it's about how life is pain and uh, until and then you die. Um, but uh, Daniel, you've read a bit more uh, of this than I have. Does that seem like an, an, an adept summarization there? Yeah, I've read Uncle Vanya. Yeah. Yeah, it starts Blake and ends Blake. I mean, it's like all Russian literature. I've never seen a happy Russian. I don't think it's possible. And I don't understand why anyone would invade Russia because you can't do to them what they already do to themselves. Like, you're just not going to out-Russian a Russian. Well, so that is only one work of fiction that this movie makes use of. It also makes use of a diegetic story that is being written by by Otto, by, uh, by the female lead initially in the film. And Otto is a... She was an actress and now is a screenwriter, uh, primarily writing for TV, and she is writing a story, and her creative process involves basically monologuing the story while having sex with her husband, sometimes during, sometimes after, and uh, he is uh, he is doing some remarkable sex prov during those scenes, uh, but asking follow-up questions and uh, kind of getting her to either answer questions that are not apparent in her telling of the story or getting her to elaborate on certain points that it will be necessary in order to tell the story. Um, and also occasionally nudging the story along, like he will he will spell out some piece of subtext for it. So we're basically watching these two characters have sex and tell a story, um, making somewhat explicit the theme that creativity um, is a collaborative process in the same way as, uh, I guess, creating a life is. And it makes that that process very explicit over the course of the over the course of the film here. Well, you know what I call her process, right? What's that? Amusegasm. <laughs> <laughs> And we do not initially recognize the importance of any of these scenes. The movie just kind of presents the lived-in reality of this couple and then proceeds to fill in the gaps and recontextualize it over the course of the rest of the film. And I think that... I've got a certain idea of what kind of film fan is going to like this uh, this movie. I think there's probably a single overlapping circle between fans of Birdman in this film, uh, which uh, which gave me some some predictive power over what your and yours and Daniel's opinions on this were going to be. Oh, you don't know what my opinion is. That's true. I don't. Um, so you never will, folks. I will put it to you and Daniel. You're going to go first because you just said that. Daniel, what did you think of this film? So this one uh, was hard for me. I like Mirakami. I, I read Norwegian Wood quite a few years ago, and it's he's a brilliant author, and his um, level of detail and how he describes just uh, human emotion and just scenery, it, it's very profound. He He's a fantastic author, and why I picked this film for us to review was I was really curious as to how one of his stories we translate to the visual medium of, of, of cinema. And I had one level of concern, which was most of his books, from my understanding, uh, have to do with emotionally wounded characters that uh, a lot of it, a lot of the acting or a lot of the, the characterizations uh, is things unsaid, left unsaid. It's a lot of like just thinking internally about your emotions and how you're reacting to the world and, and what you want and, and how you're not getting what you want and just dealing with, you know, just being emotionally damaged. And that's difficult to put on screen and make interesting over the course of three hours, right? Like like having scenes that drag on for what feels like an eternity, where so much is left unsaid is like, you have to be in the right frame of mind uh, in terms of patience uh, for a film like this. I wasn't really in that frame of mind while watching it, although I did find all the scenery very beautiful. Like Japan's a beautiful country, and uh, we really see quite a bit of the landscape. Uh, and, and, fr- and 
for some reason, there was not many cars on the road, which I, I'm pretty sure Japan has quite a few people there. I've been there twice, and it wasn't lacking for people. But apparently, in this film, there's no, no Japanese people here. It's a good film. I really liked it, but at the same time, I just felt like it was way too long, and it... I struggled to pay attention to it. And I also read Uncle Vanya and I didn't really recognize any of Uncle Vanya in this film. Uh, so I don't know. Like I, I have mixed emotions on this film. I can't tell you how much it pleases me to hear that about Uncle Vanya, because as someone who has not read Uncle Vanya, I did not feel as if I was missing out on anything because it felt like this movie was just using some of those existing lines to serve its own characters. We see a concluding monologue of Uncle Vanya repeated several times and in several different ways by several characters. There's a recurring mechanic where, uh, as he's learning his lines, um, as Yusuke is learning his lines, he is using the cassette player in his like 17-year-old pristine condition Saab, uh, beautiful automobile, um, which is very important as the film goes on. And he's listening to a recording of his wife reading every one of the lines besides uh, besides his own, because he was rehearsing to play Vanya himself. And what we see amounts to a conversation between him and his wife using words that are not their own, but in a way that, in, in a way that informs and ultimately explains a great deal about their characters, and in some cases uh, serve, uh, fills in a gap where a conversation between them should have occurred. And what we're seeing, what we're literally seeing here is a man by himself listening to the voice of his wife, but we are also seeing this man's intense longing to have this conversation with his wife in real life, a longing that he knows can never be fulfilled. I understand why this film required some patience, but at the same time, I found myself engaging with it because I, I didn't think I was missing anything on the Uncle Vanya side of things. I was putting these words in these characters' mouths. And the, the film actually at one point makes that explicit. It says... You can't read these words of Uncle Vanya without yourself coming out of them. They are revelatory. They bring whatever you are into the play. And you just have to respond to the text. You just have to let the text inform you and bring bring out your real emotions, um, which is a very interesting proposition about fiction. So, Megan. Yeah, the length of the movie was a problem for me, but I'm not sure if it had been half as long or something, you know, a, a more digestible length that I would have liked it any better. Um I just came away from it fairly lukewarm. It was, and Glenn, it's the same problem that I had with Birdman. It was just a bit up its own ass about how deep and great it was. I just found myself not able to get into it fully. Now, Megan, have you seen, you've seen Birdman then, right? Oh, yes. Would you say that Birdman had more action than Drive My Car? I honestly don't remember anything about Birdman except how annoying I found it. Um, At one point, he becomes the Birdman yes, and flies around New yes, York. Yes, of so. course he does. Of course he does. And that entire movie is shot as if in one continuous shot, so it's at least somewhat interesting to pay attention to in terms oh, of sure. staging. But yes. uh, also, it was my number one movie of that year, so I am not every every movie's your number one movie of the year. All right, <laughs> like Jesus, we get your gimmick. Every movie's perfect. I, I would say I, I echo your sentiments, Megan. I, I felt like uh, I came away with it, you know, from it lukewarm. I, I agree, it was it was too long. I do really enjoy uh, the performances, though, of Yusuke and uh, Mizaki, who we we meet later. Mm-hmm. I was just, we haven't even talked about the driver yet. Yeah, I just I I longed for some sort of levity because I, I know 
you know, Murakami enjoys his, you know, emotionally wounded characters, like I mentioned earlier. Right. But God, over three hours, I need something, something to break that up a little bit. Otherwise, I'm going to start to doze. Or, or at least my mind will start to wander a little bit. I really, I, I liked the characters and the performances. Um, the Korean man, what was his name? Uh, the Korean man was, uh, was Yunsu. Yunsu. Uh, this was played by by Jin Dayon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a dramaturge, and uh, we we eventually learned uh, his relationship with one other character, but it's not super important. He, it was a very good performance, and he's yeah. a he's a he's a, a very interesting and friendly character. But. Yeah, he brought a bit of lightheartedness to it that I really appreciated. Um, and it, it, he was the only person who smiled. What a smile, though. Ooh. Yeah, right. It was great. Yeah, there are two pretty major characters that we have not talked about here, and that's Misaki and Takatsuki. And I think we're probably going to have to wait into sp- until we get into spoilers before we can really say much of anything about them. Um, Takatsuki is, a, a, is an actor uh, who the character is an actor, and, and he ends up he ends up joining this production of Uncle Vanya. Misaki is the driver uh, that the theater production ends up hiring uh, to drive Yusuke around. No, no, no. Say say it right. Uh, <laughs> to drive my car. <laughs> there you um, go. Because and they present it as a liability requirement. Apparently, one of their one of their previous resident artists uh, ran somebody like got drunk and ran somebody over. So they no longer allow the resident artists to drive. It seems like they are somewhat informed by the fact that there are fewer experienced drivers in Japan than in the United States. That felt very uh, very much a Japan specific thing. The idea of hiring a driver because they don't expect people to be able to drive all that well. Did that seem true to life at all, or did that seem like the plot just giving him what it needed for that character to be in that role? I mean, a little bit of both. He's it makes sense in this situation. He's obviously a rich man. He's successful. He's important and a little bit famous. So they're going to want to treat him well um, when he comes to Hiroshima to do this workshop and do this production with them. So, you know, it, it, it's it's what you would expect. Yeah, uh, Takatsuki, the uh, the other actor chum, we get the sense that he is both famous and infamous, and we can't really get into why until we get into spoilers here. So, uh, but they they kind of take it on on faith that both of these that that both of these people are fairly prominent in the entertainment industry and were prior to the events of this film. So, all right, well, um, I'll go ahead and give my opinion about the film here. I, Daniel, it will not surprise you to know that I loved this film. Is it your number one film for the year, like every movie is? Honestly, uh, it, it's kind of nudging the Green Knight at this point. I'm not sure which one of them is going to end up being my number one of the year, but I I thought this film was absolutely beautiful. I think that it presents, uh, it, it, again, I think that uh, Murakami has not always worked for me. Um, I, I actually saw an adaptation of Norwegian Wood that I didn't like all that much, and I think that his uh, his interest in emotionally disturbed characters or people who are sort of haunted by their past, haunted by their traumas, haunted by their missed opportunities. It's a bit much. And the idea of a three hour long version of that, that has characters repeating dialogue from, uh, from a 150 year old checkoff play, um, by way of, by way of expressing the emotions that they're not able to speak to each other sounds like a fucking slog as I'm describing it. And it sounds like that was the experience you guys had it was just not the experience that I had. I, I may have just prepped myself exceptionally well for this. I definitely pounded some caffeine. I think I even took a nap in the afternoon beforehand. I was like, I'm, I'm ready for this. This is a film that was not afraid to delve into the, the deepest depths of human emotion and really drill into some themes that would come off as cynical if they were broached in a less 
careful way than this. The idea that you can't ever really truly know somebody, even if you live with them for 20 years and they are your romantic partner that whole time. True. Um, the idea that inside of everyone is a pit of darkness and, and there's only so much of them they're gonna sh- that they're going to share with each other. And if you could actually see that inside of every other person, it would break you. And the idea that this is how these people make sense of the world after the frankly fucked up things that they have been through in their lives. It's not an act that I seek to emulate when I like the, when I when I when I see this film and watch it and like what's going on here. It's just that these characters fundamentally held my interest. And uh, you know, up its own ass, I am I'm I'm right there with you. <laughs> That if that if those things did not land for you, if when when these characters are monologuing, here is what I stand for. If those monologues are not working for you, then this movie fundamentally does not work for you. I thought they worked, and every one of those moments hit me. How how'd you feel about the roundtable uh, table reads? Yeah, that was that was the area where I was just like, okay, as a theater person, I find this interesting, and I find like. This would be fairly tedious in real life. I know that sitting at a table read, a lot of times you're just sitting around and waiting for your turn to speak because it's all about getting everybody through the script and the leads are more important than everybody else. So there will be a lot of time where people are sitting around doing nothing and that's the gig, right? That's what acting is. You're not paid to act. You're paid to sit in your trailer and wait to act. That's what they say. (laughs) So in this case, you're paid to sit at the table until it's time for you to speak. So I those scenes, I did not find them tedious because I recognized what they were for, but uh, I, I could understand wanting those scenes to be over if you're if you're not sort of theater nerding out all over it. So, was that how you guys felt watching them? I, I liked those scenes. I just thought they went too long. Uh, but what I liked about it was how the uh, mute person was interacting, like how, how she was conveying her lines, and then how everyone was following along and doing the knock when they're done with their line to uh, create that pace. Yeah, because they because they literally cannot tell when the previous line is over because they can't speak each other's languages. We get subtitles in English for all of the Japanese dialogue. We get subtitles in English, but in parentheses for everything that is not Japanese. That was the subtitle convention that we saw in the thing. But unless you're paying attention, I actually did not even catch it. The first time we see Uncle Vanya, uh, we see a scene early in the film. And uh, as Megan pointed out to me, something I did not even notice watching it was that the two characters on stage were not speaking the same language. They were not both speaking Japanese. And it, it wasn't so much that I couldn't recognize that some of it wasn't Japanese. It was that I was tuning out the dialogue because I can't speak Japanese. Um, and I was just focusing intensely on the subtitles. So once that was once you pointed that out to me, I was like paying attention to it. I'm like, that guy's speaking fucking Tagalog. What is this? Yeah, they had one guy with a very Spanish uh, surname, and he was clearly from the Philippines. They mentioned that they had actors from the Philippines uh, and Taiwan and, and China and Japan and Korea. And they also explicitly said who was translating for who. And, and that becomes clear as through those table read scenes, how exactly this is all going to play out. Yeah, I don't know. The scenes held my interest because it was just such a weird form of theater and I liked watching it come together. And it feels it feels like that's what this would be in real life if you tried doing this. But it's also a big part of why the movie's three hours long. So I can see not not getting into those moments. Well, folks, um, you clearly did not feel the same way as me, and I don't want to waste any more of your time here before we get into spoilers. So, uh, so yeah, from here on out, spoilers for Drive My Car. So, 
So, folks, Drive My Car is the second national submission for the Best International Feature Academy Award that I've seen this year. Of course it is. Uh, the other one was the French film Titane, uh, which is about a woman who fucks a car and gets pregnant with a baby that's half car. Oh, come on. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh. this film, uh, you should see Titane, Daniel. No, <laughs> I don't want to watch Car Sodomy. I, I don't. Why? Well, it's obviously Why would not somebody car make sodomy. that? She gets pregnant with a car baby, Daniel. I, there was no sodomy well, involved. Well, well, why? Why is How that? How do you so- think pregnancy happens, Daniel? <laughs> yeah, this film uh, obviously Japan thinks it's a big deal. I think because Murakami is uh, is such a national treasure over there and is regarded yeah, as, as, uh, as rightfully so. so. I uh, I think that this movie is uh, definitely going to test some people if they're interested in checking out all these international features because it takes a lot of patience to go through a three hour movie and frankly it it, it is. It, it is an imposition on your audience's time to tell a story that takes three hours and not break it up into miniseries episodes. So, Well, and more than that, I think what we see in the film, I mean, you really can tell that story in a lot shorter amount of time because not a whole lot happens. <laughs> well, I read the short story this afternoon. It's all of 29 pages long, so they had yeah. to add a bunch of material. Mo- all the bones of the story are here. Granted, every character death is a little bit different in the short story than it was than it played out here. Um, so, of course, we need to talk about the big the big thing, which is that there is a forty minute cold open at the beginning of this this film, which culminates in Oto, which is Yusuke's wife, uh, dying of a cerebral hemorrhage quite suddenly um, at uh, at the age of I don't know forty something. Then the rest of the movie is is just him going to this theater festival. But but we learn more and more and more. And this is, you know, we're 40 minutes into this and we haven't really gotten an explanation for all of the sex muse scenes, all of the, uh, you know, at one point he walks in on his wife having sex with somebody else. And Ooh, it's never you, remarked upon. You know, you know what that reminded me of? Oh, yes. Okay, so do you are you familiar with the game Monster Rancher from like 1999? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Okay, so in Monster, it's like Pokemon, right? But what you were able to do was take CDs and you put it into your PlayStation and it would create a monster based on the type of CD that you put in. Whether it was, like, you know, whether it was music or whatever. Music CDs. Yeah, yeah. And so you do that. And, like, there were specific CDs that the game had programmed that would give you really cool monsters, right? So Oto is having sex with different men to get different stories, right? She's got to catch them all. Yeah, so she's like, okay, Yusuke gives me these types of stories, so what if I had sex with a younger man? I wonder what sort of story I would get from him. Okay, so Daniel, I know that's how you glibly summarized this to me earlier, but I'm going to challenge you here. Is that actually how you viewed that revelation by Takatsuki in the car? So first of all, when they're having that conversation in the car, what is being revealed there? to Takatsuki is that Yusuke knew that he was his wife's lover and has known this entire time that he was his wife's lover, which is new information for Takatsuki. And this is Takatsuki who has gotten close with this guy who's become his director and also his drinking companion. over And mentor. He's, he's the Bronco Henry. Exactly. Um, so what, uh, what I take from this scene is not, it's him denouncing the notion that he knew Oto any better than her husband did. And the fact that she continued this fairly fucked up story of a schoolgirl breaking into her crush's house and masturbating on his bed after uh, gradually replacing his uh, his various items in his room. Yeah, even tokens, yeah. And then eventually murdering a burglar who, who comes in to surprise her and then coming back and taking responsibility for that. 
Now, obviously, that story is what it is, and Oto has no ability to make an authorial statement of intent on that. Um, so we can't know what she was going for with that. We just have to take that uh, take that story as it is. That story is actually uh, not in the short story at all. It's well, Oto blacks out, so she doesn't remember the stories that she tells. Indeed. So, so she relies on her paramour to uh, to relay it later, and then she writes it down in a screenplay. Well, this is true, but once the story has been relayed to her and she's written it down, she presumably remembers the story up to that point. Yes. And if she's dissociating during sex and continuing the story uh, and is doing that with other with other lovers besides just her husband, it's conceivable she might continue that story with him. Right, and, with, and Toxicae had lovers. the correct CD requirements to continue the story. Or like seed requirements. Uh, right? uh, uh, oh yeah, so, so that, I, I, I thought her neurosis was silly. So that's why I'm not taking it seriously. Yeah, can we talk about that a little bit? Because Please. I have thoughts. Ooh. First of all, if you're having sex with someone and you can compose like a screenplay while you're doing it, the sex is not that good. Fair point. Um, so that is true fact number one. Now, now, her surviving husband says they had great sex. Oh, of course I'm not know. there to contradict I'm sure God who just lies there is <laughs> having I, a great time. My notes for the first 40 minutes of the film were all they do is have sex and go to funeral ceremonies. And that was truly all that they did. And, and we find out why that is later. But guys, I'm just I'm just a little tired of everything always being about sex. Um, sex and death. You know, I thank it's you. interesting to me that you said that it wasn't in the original short story. Yeah. Um, so they felt the need to pile on more sex and death. More sex. It could have been anything that fueled this. You called it a collaborative process, like a collaborative creative process that she has with her husband. Somewhat. It's it's 90% her contributing the story beats. But All yes. you have to do to be collaborative and creative is to just make a thing with another person present. She could have been getting blackout drunk. She could have been sewing while this happened. Like any number of things could have been the trigger for her to get these ideas for her screenplay, but they had to make it about sex. And that just really kind of set a bitter taste in my mouth for the entire movie. So what is in the story is that she has, uh, is, is that basically she ended up taking a string of lovers over the course of becoming a screenwriter. And that is also the backstory that we learn in the film. Um, that the sex is used as an instrument of her creativity is not made explicit in the story. Um, it's possible that that was just subtext that the screenwriter of this decided to pull out and make into text. But would it be fair to say that while you felt the movie was a bit up its own ass, this sequence, uh, I guess this method does it just feel a little bit insufferably twee? Like it's a bit too weird that that's the only way she can be creative and that she always like, why doesn't she remember it? That seems like there's something wrong in her head. No wonder she died of a fucking cerebral hemorrhage, uh, which by the way is not how she died in the show. In the short story, she died of uterine cancer in the short oh. story and it took a few months. Well, so uh, I, what I actually case. thought it was, so her daughter died, when, when, uh, you know, a long time ago, but it, it was causing that mental block uh, for her to be creative and sex took her mind off of that pain to allow her to be creative. That, that's how I thought that that was supposed to be depicted. So yeah, that I, I kind of got a similar vibe from it. Although I think they, they wanted to, they made another interesting adaptation change here, which was that in the short story, uh, their, their daughter died as an infant, just a few days old of an undiagnosed heart condition, like just instant heart attack, no chance. Which um, I think that if they'd stuck with that instead of going with what they did in the film, which is that she died at four, age four of, of a freaky pneumonia, basically. 
I think they somewhat improved upon an existing trope there, because if it had just been about her losing a baby, that is just too, a little too much about... I would have been right there with you and rolling my eyes at that, Megan, because that is, that's the only pain that a woman can experience. It's so true. And it's not that that isn't painful. That's not what that's about. It's just that that's, su- that's such a limited method of storytelling, particularly as rendered by men who are writing these women characters who don't trouble to get inside their heads any more than their own imaginations can bring to life. And and I, I felt that over the course of the film because we're literally watching this widower trying to get to know his wife after she's already dead and it's too late to ask her what she meant by any of this. So I, I'm a little bit there with you in that Oto was not taken seriously as a character by this film. Her Her name means sound. And she was just that for him. She was just a sound playing over the cassette tapes that he would listen to. And that was it. That's all I got out of it. It's not what she's saying. It's merely that she's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in what you're saying. And I'm curious what you think of Misaki as a character. Because this is the this is a character who is not all that well realized in the short story at all. She's kind of just a sounding board in the short story, whereas there is a, there's significantly more backstory to her as well as some parallels between her and Yusuke uh, that are addressed over the course of this. So I'm curious what you think of this character and what you think of the relationship that develops between them. That was one part that I actually kind of liked. I mean, it was a little in your face about it, but you know, she's the same age as his deceased daughter would have been. So she becomes a daughter figure to him. He kind of becomes the father figure for her in so much as they can comfort themselves after revealing all of the traumatic shit that they've been through. I don't know. but There were some parts of it that were difficult for me to buy. Like if he's driving in the ca- the scene where the scene in the car, basically, where he's having the conversation with Takatsuki and they're revealing all this stuff. Yeah. They're doing that while Misaki is... Is that her name? Misaki? Misaki, yeah. Misaki. Doing the, while Misaki is driving the car, and if he's thinking of this driver, starting to think of her as a daughter, um, or someone that he wants to take care of, someone that he, he might care about, um, he's having conversations about, you know, here's talking about the sex he had with his wife, and... Um, the story that she made up about the girl breaking into the house, that seems like a weird thing to talk about in front of your daughter. I don't know that I agree that she had become a surrogate daughter in that way to him. I think she was on her way to that, but I think he was also somewhat deliberately keeping her at a distance. He was keeping that employer-employee separation with her. Um, that said, this was already after he had like he'd said like take me somewhere that you like going, and she told him her entire life story basically um, as they're as they're going to the to the garbage incinerator, <laughs> which is just a lovely little diversion there. Um, we talked about all the beautiful scenery in this film. I was so happy we went to the garbage incinerator. <laughs> it's a, it's just a, a visually interesting place to be. I think that uh, she she was fulfilling that role as driver uh, somewhat literally, that she she felt like it was not her place to intrude on these conversations, and that persisted throughout the film. She was present for several of the rehearsals. She actually goes over to uh, – we learn that Lee Yuna and Kon Sun Yu are husband and wife. Um, and, and soon you basically apologizes by way of inviting him over and says, Hey, I, I didn't want to tell you that this actress who was auditioning was my wife and also possibly a first time actress, um, which is remarkable, at, at least as presented in the film. Obviously the actor playing this actor is not a first time actor. There we go. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but that is how it's presented in the film. She was a dancer previously and 
And she actually also had a miscarriage in her past, too. The, the movie couldn't resist that trope, could it? And she couldn't get her body to dance anymore, but she could get her body to, uh, to by, by using the words of Uncle Vanya and spelling them out. So I, it must be said beautifully with her hands. Like, it's not just her doing sign language. It is her doing sign language in a very dancey sort of way. Like, they, they, they clearly took their time developing what the look and feel of this character was. very slow was and deliberate sign language. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the final scene of this film is easily five minutes long, and it's her doing the entire Uncle Vanya monologue to, uh, as uh, Sonia, I want to say, um, who is supposed to be Vanya's daughter uh, by his first wife. Basically saying, like, yeah, life's a bitch and then you die, but we're going to go to, you know, go to heaven and tell God that it sucked and then we'll finally rest. That's basically the monologue there at the end. But she's doing it through this beautiful sign language over his shoulders and in front of him while he's got this look of, I don't know, fascination and joy on his face as he's just following her hands around. And it's lovely. It it is is lovely. I'll I'll say I... I like Misaki. I like the performance uh, of Misaki, um, but I've never wanted to see Aquafina in a movie more because <laughs> Aquafina as the driver, like doing her most Aquafina character tropes, like would, would have oh been so God. much more entertaining. Like Daniel, her, that 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 would be some inspired casting. Honestly, <laughs> I think that that would be good. In the American adaptation, she couldn't be Japanese, obviously. And obviously, but like she could like tr- talk shit about the guy's car, which the car is basically a character in this. She could have like tapped the brakes during that story and be like, "I want to hear this shit." <laughs> like, and would have been yeah, she, way more. All she does is advise him at the end. Well, he's telling the truth, at least as he sees it. I grew up among liars and had to learn how and had to learn to spot them in order to survive. And I'm like, "Thank you for that bit of levity, there, Misaki." The only time that I laughed in the film was when uh, Toxicate gets arrested, <laughs> and he's like, "Well, can can I change first? <laughs> Uh, he also gives an apology bow to Yusuke as well. But uh, yeah, he just straight up murdered a guy off screen. Yeah, and we was, just like play it off like, eh, all right. Well, I guess he's uh, he's off screen now. And, so uh, what, did, what did you guys think of this performance uh, by Masaki Okada as Takatsuki? First of all, what did you think of this character and what did you think of this performance? He's a cad. He can't control himself around women. He also apparently fucked a minor, and that's where he had a uh, he had a sex scandal previously. Yeah, and that's why that's why he's doing this. This is his comeback tour. Yeah, yeah. Eh, I mean, if his character did more in in the film other than being kind of a shitty actor who who didn't feel like he could play Uncle Vanya, like I would care more. But I don't know. I guess he he was the paramour. He got more of the story. He gets arrested. It's hard to get investing in a guy like that. Oh, guys! I can uh, Megan. What did you think of this character? I'm I'm ready to go to bat for this guy. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> um, I find it interesting that you think that I can see why you would call them drinking buddies. That he and Yusuke would became drinking buddies over the course of the film, but that's not quite what was going on from my perspective. Please. I think it's just it's just a polite thing in Japan to go out drinking after you're done with the job for the day. So it was, it, it read to me as more of like a coworker situation mm. rather than a true friendship that was being developed. Yeah, they weren't friends. I agree with you, Megan. Like they, they were politely going out for a drink. Yeah. I don't think that Yusuke ever interacted with him in any way that suggested friendship explicitly. He was definitely treating him as a boss treats an employee. I'm with you on that. Um, but I think that, he wasn't doing that with any of the other actors. There was something more specific going on here, and I don't think either of them quite knew what it was. I think that from Yusuke's perspective, he was trying to get to know his wife's lover. And from Takatsuki's perspective, he was trying to uh, figure out a way to connect with Oto 
by talking to her widower. Yeah, I agree with that. And so not so they're both entering this relationship under false pretenses, but I don't know how false they're really being. I don't know that they even know what they want out of this. And that is what made that relationship so interesting to me. Um, over the course of the film, and the way that it culminates, if, if it had not been paid off in any meaningful way, if it had just been the apology bow and nothing else, I would probably agree with you. This was a minor character and nothing that nothing really mattered with him. But the monologue that he ends up giving in the in the car 100% worked for me. I'm sorry. It, it it clearly did not work for you guys. It was clearly the movie up its own ass. Daniel, did you agree with that that character? I liked the monologue, but what should have happened was Yasuke y- should have just kicked him out of the car as it was driving, and then Aquafina as the driver runs him over. That's what should have happened. I would have watched that movie, Daniel. Right? Oh, man, I should write movies. Uh, if I may read a little bit from Takatsuki's monologue. This is after he has told the lengthier version of the story with the teen girl who kills a guy and then takes responsibility for it after invading the dude's apartment. Anyway, maybe the tale ends there or maybe it continues. The story leaves a bad taste. But even so, when I heard it from her, I felt that Oto had handed me something important. Kafuku-san, as far as I know, Oto-san was a really lovely woman. Of course, what I know must be a tiny fraction of what you know about her. But I think so with certainty. You lived with such a lovely person for over 20 years, and you should be grateful about that. That's my opinion. But even if you think you know someone well, even if you love that person deeply, you can't completely look into that person's heart. You'll just feel hurt. But if you put in enough effort, you should be able to look into your own heart properly as well. So in the end, what we should be doing is to be true to our hearts and come to terms with it in a capable way. I'm assuming that was an awkward translation. (laughs) If you really want to look at someone, then your only option is to look at yourself squarely and deeply. That's what I think. And by the end, Yusuke is expressing a similar idea in the ruins of Misaki's house. Uh, childhood home where her mom was killed, where her abusive, apparently dissociative identity disorder ridden mother was crushed to death by debris. And he's making an explicit parallel between his imperfect relationship and knowledge of his wife and, uh, and Misaki's backstory with her mom. And I don't think that the movie necessarily needs to earn that so much as the character needs to make that connection in a way that I believe that character would make. And ultimately I did because that scene at the end there made me, first of all, it made me weep. And obviously you didn't have a said didn't have the same reaction to it, but as he's standing there in the ruins talking about all he wants to do is see his wife one more time, hear her voice, talk to her one more time. And he knows he never can, and he can't go back. I felt that pain and I felt like that pain had been, almost gifted to him by Takatsuki. It, it had opened him up in a way that, uh, that, that even, that even regurgitating Vanya dialogue with his wife in the car couldn't do for him. Something, something real happened between those two, even if it was not something that makes his relationship with his wife any better in retrospect, it at least makes him advance a little bit. You know, his wife's gone. He's never going to improve that relationship. It's all about what he is now and how he's able to live now. And I feel like he moved that needle a little bit in ways that he never expected at the beginning of this story. And that's ultimately why it all worked for me. I like that scene. I just wish that that emotion came out earlier in the film. Like for that payoff of it being three hours in and he finally has an emotional outburst. Like it's it's hard if you haven't been with the movie the whole way, it feels a little hollow, right? Like, oh, good, finally, somebody has an emotion. (laughs) Like, thank God, somebody emotes. Great. Uh, 
I, yeah, and it's hard when every moment up until that point is them reading the dialogue of other characters, so you can't really know how much to ascribe to them as they're acting like other people. So it's... I. I I, I get the up its own acidness of, of all of that. I, I mean, I I enjoy the car trip that he, uh, Yusuke and Misaki, uh, go on. Because going from Hiroshima to basically Sapporo, that's a long-ass drive. <laughs> that's, that's like the entirety of Japan. That's the entirety of the country. All the way yeah. in the west to yeah. all the way in the north. Pretty damn close. It's not, it's not something to be done. But I love that. I thought it was a great, I don't know, it feels like a side quest to me. But they travel together to overcome their grief. So, yeah. like, that was important for those characters to do it. I don't know where all the traffic was. Like, pretty <laughs> sure there are other people in Japan, but apparently not on this little car trip. <laughs> Japan is like Montana, Daniel. It's got, it, it definitely doesn't have 130 million people living there. Clearly not. In, I guess. In an area the size of, like, less than Washington State. <laughs> I guess when I went the two times, like all those people must have been extras in some sort of film because clearly they don't live there. So another thing that happens on this road trip is they each admit to each other and themselves that they feel responsible for their loved one's death. And they not only say that about themselves, but when the other person expresses that position, they agree that that is the correct position. So they're like, yeah, you did kill your loved one. That's true. You're reading that correctly. Um, and I don't think it's entirely like they're not being fair to themselves in either case, and they're not being fair to each other in either case. But I found that feeling intensely relatable. Well, Masaki could have saved this mother or her mother. Uh, Suke didn't know that his wife was having a brain hemorrhage. But he knows that if he'd come home sooner, I mean, it feels a bit like him just saying, what if, you know, what if, if I'd made this one little change, this could have been different. I thought that was them just being honest with each other, that it doesn't matter if it wasn't actually their fault. Like, they still have that guilt. That guilt's not going to go away just because somebody says it wasn't your fault. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you on that. Just to be clear on my reaction to this. I found it very sad that these two feel this way and that they felt the need to amp up each other's grief by agreeing with each other. It felt almost codependent um, in a way that feels very unhealthy as I'm watching it. So the way these two are expressing their grief and going through it does not feel healthy as the, as the film is going on. And that they reach some emotional catharsis together does not make them necessarily in a better place. It just means they've moved the needle. Um, I, I keep coming back to that phrase, but just it seems like they were both in a rut prior to being able to express this to each other. And this is maybe moving in some direction that's going to get them to a better place in life. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't exactly feel hopeful when you're standing over the wreckage of your child at home and your life, no matter how beautiful the landscape looks behind you. They even cut back to a car POV, and it's also in a beautiful, snowy, you know, wintry landscape there up in Sapporo. You've described every Murakami book, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> really, I just felt my heart breaking for them, and that's, I think, what the movie was going for, ultimately. No, but I'm glad that you had that, that reaction. I mean, that's, don't let cynical Daniel and, uh, you know, non-impressed Megan impact Merciless your, Megan. <laughs> you know, impact your, your opinion on the film. Like, if you, if you cry at the end that it moved you to that point, that's fantastic. I'm glad that you had that emotion. It is far more common for me to, and I said this to Megan on the night, it's far more common for me to recognize those emotions welling up in myself in some sort of self-aware kind of way than to actually start crying while watching a movie. And this was the latter for me. And I give a movie a lot of credit if it manages to make that reaction happen. So um, 
I say I found this intensely relatable because my father died this year quite suddenly, as you both know, of course. Mm-hmm. And watching the way that these characters deal with grief uh, and watching the imperfect and in many ways self-destructive ways that they deal with grief, I found that relatable in a way that, you know, it wasn't a good feeling to experience that I could relate to these characters, but it's still it's still hit on an emotional truth that it's there for me and I know it's true because I'm going through it myself. And whether they think that their loved one's death was their responsibility or not, or that they could have done anything about it, or and, and the fucked up relationships that these two had with their respective loved ones is not what I had with my father at all. But but I can definitely relate to the idea of what if I'd gotten there a little bit sooner and could have gotten medical help in there a little bit sooner. And I don't think that it's possible to not feel that way unless your loved one gets hit by a fucking bus or something like, but it is potentially a way in which this movie hit me at just the right time. Um, and, uh, you know, being a theater nerd definitely kept me engaged up until that point. So I think that certainly helped as well. So this movie might've just been the perfect storm of what Glenn needed right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but one way or another, I, uh, I, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let y'all's reaction to it. inform my, my placement of it in the Glennies or, uh, or not. It's definitely going to be in right. It'll be number one, which, like every movie, which single number digit one. number it's going to be in there. <laughs> I'm glad I picked this film then. Yeah, it was a, it was a great pick. I think it was a great pick for, uh, for Megan to join in with as well. Do you have any other thoughts about the uh, about the film more generally about about the story about what it says about Japan? No, you know I found the bit about the multilingual casting really interesting, and the fact that it was portraying it as this new um, thing that was interesting also to a lot of people. I mean, they had a great turnout. There was packed packed seats every night that they had performances. I have a question for you. Yeah. So how faithful were the translations uh, when they were speaking Japanese? Yeah, they were they were not always direct translations, but they did a really good job of capturing the intent. Um so I was not annoyed by them. Well, that's good. Yeah. That was a good feeling to experience. We we recently reckoned with that on Squid Game and uh and obviously none of us speak Korean, so we had to rely on the word of other of Korean speakers yeah. to be able to to address that, but um it seems like uh, Murakami is somebody that they at least give a shit about getting right. Yes. <laughs> so um, it's it's good to hear they got the A-team for this. <laughs> Daniel, uh, any final thoughts about the film? You know, I felt like it was too long, but it, it, was, it was quite a beautiful film. And I, I'd be up for seeing more, you know, Murakami you know, adaptations, or at the very least, just more films from Japan. I know we... We typically have seen, when we look at our, our international viewings, we stick to the Maggi Aran. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we see other, you know, international films. But we haven't really seen too many Japanese films. So it'd be nice to, to see more from, from that part of the world. I wholeheartedly support that. Well, the next time we bring you on, uh, may or may not be for a Japanese film. But I hope it's not nearly 100 episodes again before we get you back on here. So... Folks, thank you for joining me on what is likely going to be our last podcast for this year. It's been an interesting year for movies, and it's been an interesting year in all of our lives, and uh, hopefully we are nearing the end of this wretched pandemic. That I wish would I believed nice. that were true, but we're maybe approaching the last year of it. That seems uh, that seems ambitious, but... Uh, this yeah. would be our sophomore year of the pandemic. I'm looking forward to what the junior year has in store for us. <laughs> Yeah, that we that we rounded this out with a three-hour-long movie. Um, I've said before that, you know, 
round uh, that reckoning with all the movies that I've seen in a year is part of how I mark the passage of time. It's sort of what the purpose that the Glennies serve for me, um, and I uh, and I think that it's been a it's been a good variety this year, um, despite our our limited theatrical options. So uh, yeah, folks, it's been a pleasure, and, uh, and yeah, on to twenty twenty two. Thank you for joining us, Megan, and uh, thank you, Daniel. Oh, thank you, thanks, Megan. It's always nice to hear your voice. Indeed, thank you, Daniel. All right, well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of Drive My Car. If you have any feedback on our discussion, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net, and have a good night.